kids and you. 95th and Stony Island. Stony Island Audio. Don't you just love it when I add that little extra bit of sauce? This is the Stony Island Audio Network. Your home for creator conversations. I'm Open Mike Eagle. This is what it happened was season three, episode ten, with our guest Dante Ross. I'm coming at you from yet another hotel room. I'm currently in Canterbury in the southeast of the United Kingdom uh, doing this rap tour that's been going damn fabulous. Again, thanks for asking. But that's not what you're here for. You're here to hear Dante talk about his marvelous exploits and rap adventures. And this week, oh my goodness, we have one I've been really excited for people to hear because this project was very formative for me and um, any insight I had into the creation of it and, um, and, and bits into the, the lifestyle of the human being of the one and only Old Dirty Bastard was real important to me. Dante signed Old Dirty to Electra Records um, and they worked on his debut album. Return to the 36 Chambers, the Dirty Virgin. So we get to hear all about the artwork. We get to hear all about the MTV news segment where where Dirty, you know, went and picked up his food stamps in a limo. We get to hear all about the songs that RZA brought to them and the ones that Dante and them had to finish in the studio and trying to get Dirty to uh, to rap on and finish. That's actually that's a key to some of the moments on the album. Um, we're just trying to get it done. But you'll hear about all that right now. No more spoilers. Um, we're nearing the end of this season and did want to say a quick thing about this episode. Um, you know, we've been recording these remotely. So, um, sometimes when there's trouble with the audio, we're not able to tell until well after the recording is done. So in this case, this is one of those episodes where, um, the audio on Dante's end got a little crunchy in some areas. So we apologize for that. Uh, always seeking to give you a more a more pleasant and polished audio experience but it has been tough since we've been recording remotely next season i hope to be able to get back in the studio with with my guest and um do some stuff live so uh we can go back to that pristine audio we started with in season one but this is season three this is what it happened was with myself dante ross talking about old dirty bastard um i'm gonna do more shows now so uh see y'all next week welcome man this is open mike eagle this is season three of what it happened was y'all we got another very special guest with us he needs no introduction but if you ever read the line of notes on classics from all kind of folks you know who knew where to find the dope it's dante serving stories like entrees i guess for season three it's a giant like andre mr no shit taker the third base hit maker eggnog innovator the odb motivator he signed a roster full of heavy hitters office messenger the grammy winner motherfucker dante ross in the 90s you would call him the plug signing act after dope act he saw in the clubs was Pete Seagull leaders dealing all the above. If you don't know him, don't call him a scrub. It's what it happened was.
What up, folks? This is Open Mike Eagle, and this is another episode of what had happened was with our esteemed our esteemed guest this season. You know, we, we're uh, we're coming to the tail end of these, man. Yeah, we only we're got like I think three left after this one. I you think the, th- the three are humdingers too. So it yeah, <laughs> this one's gonna be great too, though. And and the funny thing about this one, I got questions is based on an album and based on you know, the group he was in and based on, you know, business stuff. But I feel like a lot of this interview is going to be you telling me stories that I have no idea how to even ask about. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I feel like that's going to be the meat of this. So feel free whenever anything um, pops into your head that you feel like um, you want to you wanna let people know about, please do. But we're talking about, um, man, he's a very important artist for me because before I heard of him, like I was really in this phase where I was listening to almost exclusively like alternative rock music in Chicago in like the early '90s. Like I kind of was, I had grew up in hip hop and I was kind of done with it. And then I saw the video for Shimmy Shimmy Ya, and I wasn't even like hip to the Wu Tang. Like when I heard Wu Tang, because I wasn't really messing with rap then. What popped into my head was like, is it going to be like Vushnikins or something like that? You know what I'm saying? Like I had this whole other thing in my head and I saw that and I was like, oh, what is this world with this dude and this like crazy energy? And that kind of sucked me back into rap music like from 94 to this day. It was well, really what like- What alternative music were you listening to? It was grunge at the time. So it was coming off of the Seattle stuff. Uh, so, you know, the Pearl Jam Nirvana and the stuff like- it came like immediately after that, like Stone Temple Pilots, like, you know, R.E.M., all that kind of stuff, you know. Got you, got you. Alternative radio was, was my jam at 12, 13 years old, you know. Got it. Yeah, I never, I mean, I like Nirvana and, and I guess I like Alice in Chains, but Pearl Jam didn't do it. I don't know. I was, I liked, I liked the Pixies and Dinosaur Jr. Yeah. and Sonic Youth and kind of stuff that was a little more edgy than that. Yeah, Breeders was big for me. And I ended up getting into Pixies through Frank Black, you know, like, so all of that stuff too, all of the college stuff, the alt stuff, like, that was my jam. You the know, Pixies was the reason I went to work at Electra Records. That's what's all oh, that's interesting. They, they, yeah, and they also signed They Might Be Giants, which is my favorite band of all time, was signed to Electra wild. at that time as well. My friend, yeah. my friend was their AR person, Peter. I, uh, I went to a meeting with my old boss and he, he was telling me about bands they signed and he played me Tracy Chapman Fast Cars before it came mm-hmm. out and it blew my mind and I didn't know she was black. And then he was like, do you know about this band, The Pixies? I was like, yeah, they're like my favorite indie rock band. He was like, yeah, we just signed them. And I was That's like, I, awesome. should pro- I should probably work here. <laughs> they, had, they had the good taste. In yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what's up. But, uh, you know, another artist that you signed in your amazing run that you were there um, was Old Dirty Bastard. Yep. Of the Wu Tang Clan, and speaking of labels, speaking of signing, if you look at the story of the Wu Tang, it starts with RZA when he was Prince Rakim. And that was something that happened at Tommy Boy. Were you there at Tommy Boy at that time? No, no I wasn't. Okay. I was not there. Did you have any experience or familiarity with that whole project when it happened? Um, I knew his old manager, Mel Kwan. Um, mm-hmm. He was a friend of mine, and he's the guy who put out that record, Holy Wars, by, by a Divine Force. So, so he was my boy, kind of. And I had met RZA, on, but I didn't really remember it. And I do remember the first, one of the first times I met 
Rizzo, he um, told me, yeah, you, you knew me when I, I met you when I was whack. That's what he told me. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And, and I, I had the record in my office, and he came to my office one time. I always had a stack of records, promo records, and I put it in the front for him. And he was like, oh, yo, look at you. But, but I, didn't, I didn't really know him. But he knew who I was, which was interesting. Did you have uh, any experience or familiarity with the genius's early project when he was the genius? Um, I knew about it, and I knew about the genius because everyone always said he was really dope, and that album ne didn't necessarily indicate that he was really dope. But a lot of people like were talking about him. He was like kind of he had a he had a, a name in the streets as a very good MC. Hmm. Like I guess he was known to battle people, and, and he would you know show. I guess I don't think he was on Stretching Bobito, but he was he was known to be nice with his, though the album wasn't all that. Mm -hmm. So when was the first time you remember hearing of something called the Wu-Tang Clan and putting all that together? It was one protector that came out. It started getting played pretty early on Stretch and Bob, and it took the city by storm quick. It was like one of those records that hit a nerve. I think it's because it was so left field. You know, when you first heard that record, it sounded like the greatest posse cut you'd ever heard, but you didn't know anyone who was in the group. Ah, uh, interesting. Know? And that was like in the moment when posse cuts were really popping. But no one, you didn't know who they were. You're like, this is a great posse cut, but who the fuck are these guys? They're so good. And so I guess they got signed relatively quickly. They did the deal with Loud. And my friend Maddie C was in the middle of the deal, Maddie and... I guess this guy Trevor brought it in, but but Maddie C hit me to the fact that they they were all basically free agents. Maddie was my boy, and I was like, uh -huh. I was like, oh okay, and um, I uh, was immediately attracted to Old Dirty Bastard and Method Man. What music were you able to check out at the time to even dig in and see just who he was single. feeling? Just the single. single. So just but going it, off of them verses. I mean. You know, if you listen to Protect Your Neck, Method Man to me is the standout on it to this mm -hmm. day. Though, though, you know, Inspector Deck and the Genius both have great verses. Mm -hmm. but, but when I heard Dirty, I was like, I've never heard anything like that before. It was so left field. Um, and I can't say his verse is a standout, but his performance is a standout. The energy is yeah, not, it was, it was nothing like, like it. Was, it was so chaotic. Um, and, you know, I kind of got to see what he looked like, and I, I was like, he looks amazing. Like, this guy is like, he's a superstar. And my initial want was to sign Dirty and Meth. I thought they were a, a subgroup or a Like a duo with just them two. Uh, EPMD. Right. And I met with RZA and all those guys. I met with RZA, um, Divine, and I want to say Dirty and Mookie. And I said, yo, I have an idea. Like, I want to sign Meth and, and Old Dirty, and I want to make them like the new Run DMC EPMD. And RZA was like, yo, that's an ill thought, but I'm not going to do that. He was very... Mm -hmm. he. 
he, he's a very direct person. He, he doesn't mince, he didn't mince words with me. And I'm kind of the same way. So I always liked that about him. He was very direct. And I said, Word, he said, nah, I'm gonna put meth, I'm gonna put meth over there with Russell and them, meaning Def Jam. But, but I, but I, li- I like you and Dirty because I'm gonna give you your first gold record. Whoa, okay. And I said, Word? He said, yeah. And then he looked up on my shit, all the groups I had. I had like stuff on the wall. He said, yeah. And you got all the gods. So I wanna put, I wanna put Ace on here. It makes sense. Mm. And I said, okay. So I would say that having Buster and the brand Nubians, and Pooba helped my cause. Um, wow. They they seen that I was dealing with a lot of people who were five percent, so it kind of made sense to them. They weren't skeptical, um, and, and you know I guess he you know Reza's a really smart guy. He had his background check. He knew all about me, um, and and I had done some some research on him as well. Um, and he had I guess maybe asked the loud guys. I don't really know who who he did his background check from, but he definitely had done a background check, and I and he you know he was cool. He. He wanted to put Dirty there. It wasn't super competitive. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone else really made an offer. If they did, it wasn't taken that seriously. And we worked the deal out. It didn't take a very long time. It wasn't super expensive. It was a reasonable deal. And, and we got to cooking really quick. How, like, in the sequence of them getting solo deals, like, how early on was, did you sign Dirty out of all of them? Meth okay, was so signed to Def Jam right away. And mm-hmm. then, or, or was signed into Def Jam right away, and then I signed Dirty. Was there any precedent that you knew of that kind of deal where like a group came in and signed individual deals with different labels there was and and my old boss had been in the middle of a parliament funkadelic okay so he he i explained it to him and he said oh it's this is a lot like like parliament funkadelic i what do you i go what do you mean he goes well i signed parliament to warner brothers but you know there's parliament and there was funkadelic there are two different entities and then there's boots who's basically the same band too and the brides of funkenstein but george had deals with us with Casablanca, with a bunch of labels. So I, he's like, I see what he's doing. He's doing it George Clinton. Hmm. So when you go from that initial meeting with RZA and, and all the rest of those people, uh, how soon after that do you have like a meeting where it's just you and Dirty, where you, where you get to know him? Pretty soon because he liked me. I don't know what it was, but he, you know, we hit it off like right away. Like we were just... Because I was really adamant that I wanted to sign him. And I really, um, I felt that he was his own marketing plan, if that makes sense. Right? I wanted to, I was taking direction from him because his ideas were so absurd that that I thought like, wow, he could could really do something. He reminded me in a way of Bismarcky and and people like that because he was fun. He had a lot of, a lot of, um, humor to what he did. He was like a cartoon character. He's larger than life. So with Dirty, I really took a lot of cues from him how he wanted to present himself. And I think he appreciated that right away. I wanted to know how he wanted to do things. Do you remember any of the first ideas he had that he was telling you about at that time? I mean, there was tons. Like, he was always like, he was like, yo, from my first video, I want to show up in an Uncle Buck car. And like, He's like, I'm gonna be in like the Uncle Buck Cadillac, and I'm gonna go in the store, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy my own record with food stamps, but I'm gonna be on the food so, stamps. So the food stamps thing, this was he had this idea way before anything. Man, I think he had all of those ideas for a long time, you know. And he was like, and then I'm gonna have like in my car, I'm gonna have like three chicks from like the '70s, and I'm gonna be like a like a I'm gonna be like Superfly. Like it was like always some shit, and and we didn't we didn't get to do as many of those ideas as we should have, 
partially because it was hard to contain dirty and and you know just labels being what they were but look that album cover is completely his idea he had the idea a long before the album came out and he literally came to my office with his his card his welfare card and we went upstairs and my friend ran the art department and asked her if i could use a color xerox machine because back uh-huh. then there were no scanners and it was expensive to use a color xerox machine but she was like yeah okay i'll help you guys and she mocked it up and she mocked it up into you know maybe at 10 by 12 size for the the cover 12 by 12 and she was like i'm gonna work on this for a minute i'll come and see you guys in a while and i think we went to eat some food and she came down and dropped some stuff off on my desk and it was the initial mock-up and it was so good i was like this this is the idea and we had it long before the album was done and and she had the idea because she was a wu-tang fan a white woman named ali truch super cool one of my favorite people I've ever worked with as an art director, she was like, we could take the W's and we could put them in the welfare insignia. Wow. And that was her idea. When I wanted to bring it up there to do it with Dirty, she was like, she, right away I was like, she goes, oh, this is like UB40, because first UB40 record, so English version of the welfare form. Okay. So, so we had precedent that it could be done. So we kind of determined before we submitted the idea that it wasn't going to be offensive and... We submitted an idea and it wasn't deemed offensive. Did Dirty communicate what it was he was trying to get across with the food stamps, to get across with the welfare card? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, he was like, he was like, I'm, I'm the realist. You know what I mean? I don't have no heirs. Like, I'm the realist. Like, I'm, I grew up in poverty. I'm going to show everyone what poverty looks like. And I don't give a fuck. I'm not ashamed of who I am or how I grew up or where I'm from. This is who the fuck I am. You know, I'm, I'm a guy who grew up in group homes and foster homes and was in, you know, on welfare and ate government cheese and all that. And he was like making a conscious decision to, to be the polar opposite of super shiny suit, you know, f- you know that kind of thing, the, the aspirational thing. He was like, I'm anti-aspirational, though he never said that. That was mm-hmm. his goal. That's what he intended to do and to do it um, in a way that was funny. You know, and that was that was dirty. There was a sense of humor in a lot of shit he did. He was that's very that's, he was very tongue in cheek. He was super self aware, which doesn't always come across. I don't think people realize how self aware he was. And you know, look, drugs drugs don't help. You know, right. they didn't. Right. His behavior could be really extreme, but I never had a bad moment with the dude, which which is funny. I laughed at his antics, and I think he. he he appreciated the fact that I thought it was funny. I mean, look, I thought the guy was a genius. I was definitely um, a huge fan besides being his A&R guy. I just, I loved him as a person. He was a unique dude. He was like that, that wino around the way that you love. I can't explain it yeah. other than that. He was your man who goes to jail for three months and doesn't give a fuck. He just was that guy. He really lived that life. So he has the idea to go get the food stamps in the limo. Like, how, so, how do y'all... So, yeah, he right, had the right, idea, right. but look, that came so much later. That was right. after the record was out. He was already famous. He already had a hit song. And I honestly, what no one says is that that had repercussions. So, and he was not happy with it after it came out. And if I had been more on top of it, and his manager at the time, and the publishers had ran that back to me, I would not have been a champion for that idea. 
has just released his first solo album called Return to the 36 Chambers, the dirty version. So we decided to pay the man a visit to sample his unique worldview. Please remain seated until this piece comes to a halt. Rap, 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 hip-hop. Rap. One for the trouble, two for the time. You know, it's, just, it's, it's basic. See, I'll take it to the next level. If it means anything to you. I rap, but I sing, man. And I don't know how to sing. So they, they sold it to MTV? Like, how did they get the MTV thing going? So Teray and the people at MTV News hit up uh, my publicist, Beth Jacobson, and they were like, hey, we want to do this thing. And it was Dirty's idea to an extent, um, but he didn't have anyone around him tell him you might not want to do that. So I had like an endless argument with Teray about this, and I did not respect the clip a whole lot and and mm -hmm. Teray said to me once and he's right he said but that made that made him famous to the whole world whether you liked it or not it, it left a lasting impression that people still celebrate and talk talk about this day and i didn't appreciate it and you know for a long time i i, I didn't really talk to Teray, and he mm -hmm. you know was very cognizant of the fact that i didn't care for him um but you know we're cool now he and when he said that to me that that made a lot of sense and He's pretty frank about the way he talked to me and, and understood kind of why I don't appreciate, I didn't appreciate it at the time. But hey, you know, that's me. And, and a lot of people do hold that as a really lasting image and an aspect of like who Dirty was. And it's pretty funny when you watch it now, there were just ramifications with child services and things of that yeah. nature. And, and I don't want to really get super into that stuff because that's mm -hmm. not really my place to talk about that, you know, that Shakita and, and, and their thing and, um, and I have a lot of respect for her and Dirty's family, but there were ramifications and Dirty did call me. I was in Los Angeles and he was super duper upset about the fallout of what happened. And he told mm -hmm. me they got me looking like a fucking clown. He's like, I what see. the fuck? He was upset. He was really upset. And I screamed on my publicist over it. Mm -hmm. And look, if he had had a real manager, I don't think it would have happened. So how many albums was he signed for when you first locked him in? Well, everyone is signed for five to seven albums at that time. That's right. how it went. You know, he was signed. He only made two records for, for mm -hmm. Electra Records, and I only worked on the first one. How close is where your boss is paying attention to his album? Well, they were paying attention because they knew it was going to be big because Wu-Tang kept growing, 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 growing. So was there any, ever any interference with people trying to, you know, add extra cooks to the kitchen? No. Nah, you know what happened was the record came out and it blew up, and Sylvia Rohn had taken over, and she really... She really took a lot of credit for the success of that record, but she had zero to do with signing him and, and didn't really have a relationship with him at that point um, or with RZA. And she was, she was not necessarily, she was skeptical before it came out a little bit. Um, but the pre-orders you know, were so steady and heavy that mm -hmm. we knew we had one. And the record, um, I had the direct line to flex and that record was big in New York from, from day two, not day one, because there was a mishap at day one. So, you, are we talking specifically about Brooklyn Zoo? Yep. Okay. What was the, what's the mishap at day one? So I was friends with Angie Martinez at that point, mm -hmm. and I, she was always asking me for shit before flex. Mm -hmm. So my dumb ass was like, I'm going to throw her a bone, fuck it. Gotcha. So I, I gave her the test press of Brooklyn Zoo. She played the remix. The remix did not pop. That was on a Wednesday. And it got mixed response. 
I'm not sure I remember the remix. No, no one does. Lord Digger. <laughs> Lord Digger did it. And it wasn't whack, but it's certainly not the single. Yeah. I'm the one man army a son. I never been taken out. I keep MCs looking out. I drop signs like cross be dropping babies. Enough to make a nigga go crazy. And I probably should have never put a remix on it. And after that, but she played the remix. And I was like, Angie, what, why'd you do that? Because when Rizzo called me, he lost his mind. He's like, yo. We caught an L. Like he was so livid. He was livid. So I had to, I had to scramble and I hit flex up and I said, yo, man, can we come in and play the right version? He said, yo, that's what you get for giving her that shit first, D. Damn. And I was like, you know what? You, you, you never lied, man. I, you ain't never lied, flex. You right. And I ain't never going to do that again. So I brought it to, we brought me and Rizza and my man Mike Jones, who worked with me, Uncle Mike, we walked it into hot. And Flex, and, and it was Dirty, Rizza, Mike, and we played the record. The record jumped off crazy. Yeah! <laughs> Party people all around the town. This is the ODB, kid. Tell me what you're coming to your area. And I'm gonna tell you one time. you gonna love this. I'm the one it reacted great flex this is when flex first started dropping bombs he played mm. that shit like six eight times in a row phones went crazy and rizza had set the record straight um and it was real it was a real record and literally that record never stopped playing never is the album done at that point where that song comes out the album's done the album's mastered okay I mean, it took so long to make the record, considering what, you know, it took a year to make the record, but I was given, I think, five reels and, and seven, six, seven songs, I think, from the album were already done, basically. They were not mixed, but they were tracked. And, and um, Dirty was trying to finish the other records and it was not easy to get him to focus. So I got Shimmy Shimmy, Brooklyn Zoo, um, Damage, Damager, um, Going Down, and I think Cutting Heads. No, Rawhide. Rawhide and Cutting Heads. Those, I think, were the records already done. Uh, Harlem World wasn't done. Dirty Dancing wasn't done. Um, Protect Your Neck 2 wasn't done. Uh, Brooklyn Zoo wasn't done. Brooklyn Zoo 2, Tiger Crane. Uh, I think everything else more or less was done, or a lot of it was done. So the stuff that was done, and I think a lot of that stuff is listed as being recorded at 36 Chambers Studio. It was. So, it, well, so it was recorded at 36 Chambers and at INS, INS mm -hmm. Studios. He, he used, uh, or Firehouse, sorry, Firehouse Studios. He had recorded a lot of it there, too. And I think he recorded a lot of it on, not a lot of it, but some of it, on Wu-Tang's budget. But he did a lot of it at 36 Chambers, for sure. So what was that process like? I mean, in terms of your involvement, because RZA is, of course, a genius, and he's making these projects on his own. But at that time, really all they have out is what? The Wu-Tang album and Meth's album isn't even out yet at that point, is nope. it? Nope. Meth's album's so, not out. So how are, how are you feeling about you know, this process where they're making most of the record on their own and then bringing it in to, to finish it. I mean, it was, it was so on fire. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't worried about it at all. 
And also the way we did the deal was, it was understood Rizzo was doing the whole record. Like that mm-hmm. was never a question. So, you know, it, it was what it was. And, and I was happy about that. You know, I don't think anyone could have crafted a sound that was more um, unique or special for Dirty. And if you listen to that record versus the other Wu records, there's more bass in that record. Because um, yeah. Dirty really loved bass. So it's a little more low end, a little muddier on the bottom. It's not a high tech record. It's 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 RZA style, but but we hit a we hit a, we hit a a, a bump in the road because RZA's so busy being RZA and taking care of all the other Wu Tangs, and he knows I'm pretty competent. He kind of drops the reels and dirty off in my lap, and he goes MIA for a considerable amount of time. So, so then, how did you? Yeah, how did you handle that? I mean, I I attempted to mix the record. And it wasn't always easy. And I tried to get Dirty to do some additional vocals. Like on Shimmy Shimmy, I tried to get him to do the second verse. And he would never do the fucking second verse. So he wrote a second verse and just never would do it? No, no. Oh, he never even wrote it. I tried to get him to write a second verse. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and one day I came in the studio and he was like, yo, I gave you the second verse. And I was like, you did? He's like, yeah, listen. And it's the first verse backwards. <laughs> Right? It's the first part of it. And he's like, yeah, that's what you mean. And then he had the same verse. He's like, yeah, just like your man Q-Tip. He had the same verse. And I was like... This is the... I got the tape single right here. Yeah, and I was like, I hate you. I was like, I I hate you. (laughs) And I think think one of these verses on here, it has the the second verse backwards. And I always wondered about that. Like, like it's interesting. As a a recording artist now, like, I I think about stuff like that different because... I'm like, oh, that's cool. It, it, they flipped the second verse backwards, but I'm like, okay, now let's see. He was supposed to do a second one, but yeah. he just had the engineer just flip it. Yeah, you know, and me and him would, we would definitely argue and, and go at it with each other, but not like, it was never hostile. It was always like pretty funny. He's like, he was hard for me to be mad at. He was really hard for me to be mad at. I can't explain it other than that because he had a good heart and he really liked me and I really liked him. We had, we have vibes, like, you know. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. 
it's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. You know, one of the hardest things about making a record is trying to mix it. But, you know, I had a lot of trouble doing that. Like, it was it was really tough to get some of those mixes going in. Particularly on, um, on Brooklyn Zoo, I couldn't get it to sound right. I could hmm. not get it to sound right. I tried to mix that thing three times, and it didn't crack. And finally, my assistant, Rick Posada, who, who, who did a lot of babysitting, too, for Dirty and, and had a good relationship with Dirty, we decided we needed to put a kick and snare in it to make it pop. So that way we could, we could leave everything in the right places but have drums that cut through. So we, we chopped up a famous break beat that'll leave nameless and we put the kick and snare in there and that was the solution. On the fourth, fourth try, we got the mix right. Wow. And I told him at one time and he like brushed it off like it didn't happen. I was like, yeah, you know I put the, the ba-ba-ba in there and he was like, yeah, all right, anyway. And I, <laughs> and like he really never acknowledged but but if you listen to that record and off camera, I'll tell you what it, what it is. Um, you can hear it. You can hear it clearly. You hear the snare. So True Master is listed as a producer there. He was a producer on that record, which I didn't really know until he came to the studio and at mastering and got in an argument with Dirty about it. Okay, because Dirty's also listed as co-producer on it. And Dirty, you know, I guess Dirty did something. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he well, I wasn't there when they constructed the beat. But And True Master, I really never talked to him or knew him during the process of the record. I really met him at Mastery when, when an intense argument that almost came to fisticuffs erupted and Tom Coyne earned his name, Tom the Referee Coyne. Tom the so, Referee, yeah. So he got in between everyone. He kicked everyone out of the studio and gave me a tongue lash and told me, don't, don't bring that shit in my studio, Dante. You've made a lot of, I've mastered almost all your records. But like, you know, and, and I started calling him the referee. When that was his name, the next day we were like, yo, the, the ref is here. He said, y'all got to keep it good. And we finished mastering a two-day session, which usually doesn't happen, usually one day. And um, that's how he got that name, the ref. I love Tom Coyne. Rest in peace. He was a great dude. Uh, you, met, you mentioned Rick Posada a second ago. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was real interesting in the liner notes, uh, Dirty Shouts Out, yourself, Rick Posada, and Lisa Brunson from the label, specifically for putting up with his shit. My assistant, so Lisa was, she's, she's like, I mean, she worked at Def Jam and ran A&R Admin for like 20 years afterwards. She's like the senior vice president at 300. She was my assistant, and she's the best assistant I ever had. She did way more than an assistant. She was an assistant, my friend, a babysitter to my groups, and just a really strong, strong black woman who, who I love and had great respect for, who I'm still super good friends with to this day. And um, Lisa really had a rapport with all of my acts. She gets a big, big shout out. And she had a real rapport with Dirty. She mm -hmm. could tell Dirty what others wouldn't tell him, like, stop that bullshit. Like, you know, like only, only a black woman could talk to another black man is how I yeah. kind of look at it. Like, she, she wasn't having it, but she also loved him a lot. And she, you know, she worked closely with me and Rick on the record. Mm -hmm. So... RZA handed off, Dirty handed off the reels of what was finished and expected y'all to, to finish the rest. It just was what it was. What's a song y'all remember finishing that you just got stark memories of in, in, the, well, in that time? Well, you know, Damager, I remember we had the, we, um, 
on Rawhide, he he was mad that his verse wasn't right, and we kept having to work on the verse on that forever. Shimmy Shimmy, of course, because of the backward shit. Brooklyn Zoo, because we had the four four failed the three failed attempts to mix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Baby Come On, because it was on the reel and it was banging, and I and I wanted to really get it. Hip it to the hop because I love the drums. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Rawhide, because. Cause Rawhide was ill, cause the shit he said in it, like yeah. talking about AIDS. He said, "I don't. I'm not saying I got it, but if I got it, <laughs> but you if I got, got it, it, you got it." <laughs> yeah, that shit was wild to me. <laughs> I was just, I was like, "Yo, can we say that?" Um, and of course, Sweet Sugar Pie, cause when we did Sweet Sugar Pie, he called his mom and he sang it over the phone. He was crying drunk, and I love you, mom. And he was on the phone for like an hour. I'm. This is my Barry White song for you, baby. Like I love you, Damn. mom. It was super emotional, and it was, it was really, it was quite a sight to see. My mama taught me this shit, and my daddy learned from my mama, which is good, which is good. <laughs> so you know those those on the whole thing, just the whole experience. Thirty might have ten people in the studio. He was a wild character, but the sessions were pretty slow and steady. We didn't get a lot of work done, to be honest. But if we hadn't spent all that time in Chungking, we'd never got the record finished. And we got to finish, man. And I got to give a strong shout to my boy Jack Herska. So he was the assistant engineer, but he engineered the entire record. So he engineered all the mixes, not not the stuff that was a track, but and he was my favorite assistant at Chung King, and he became an engineer. And it's one of the few records he's credited on. But Jack Kursko was a scientist on the record. He really, really, really worked hard on that record and got it sounding good. That record sounds good, like it you does. Know, it's a good sounding record. And we, you know, look, RZA didn't give me a blueprint. We'd have no roadmap. We made that shit up as we went along, but we figured it out. He, you know, because. Rizzo did things like he's taking a low note on the tone reel. I don't know if you know about two inches. They have a bass. They have different tones, like the low tone, mid-range, upper mid, highs, right? So you have a tone reel to align your tape. He would take the alignment sound, the low note, the bass, the, the you know, five, whatever is the lowest register note that you align your ship where he played the bass line with that. And that was mm. really wild to me. I never heard anyone do that before. He would take that on, on his ASR and play the bass note and also filtering 808s and making those bass lines, making bass lines out of filtering 808 sounds. So it was shit that like I had never imagined doing prior or had any idea how to make sound good. And we just we just kept at it and we got it sounding pretty good. So you mentioned Damage a second ago. And I yeah. think I've read that Damage was an old all-in together It is. Routine. It's an old routine. 100%. Yeah, so a lot of those together, records are. Yeah. So, so is um, Shimmy Shimmy. And, uh, and, and just for people who don't know, All In Together Now was RZA, Jizza, and Dirty, right? And Dirty those was three the cousins. Okay. And Jizza wrote, wrote a lot of Dirty's raps. Yeah, and so, you know, I think people in the fandom come to find out all that out later, right? That, that Dirty didn't write a lot of that. His, wrote a lot his, of that. his brother, 12 O'Clock, wrote a lot of shit. Really? 12 O'Clock wrote a lot of stuff. And 12 O'Clock was a really good rapper who got signed to Def Jam and never came out. I really don't know whatever happened to him. He was the nicest guy in the whole was world. Was he in Sons of Man? Was he in no, Sons of Man? No, it's 60-second okay. assassin, his cousin. Got you, okay. That's his biological, too, though. 12, 12 is his biological. Clearance rock, he rocked the D-Duck, you fucking mind. Fuck shit up, wanna hurry up. No 
was that ever any because I know there was ghost writing there was writing in hip hop people wrote for other people like Hugh wrote for NWA like people know all this stuff right but like when it came to credits when it came to legal like was there ever any any weirdness about any of that no no and 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 I, I don't have the record in front of me so I can't tell you if we actually gave Jizz a publishing credit I believe we didn't I don't believe it was ever a conte- uh, contested either huh and and did that did that seem did you think anything about it? Did that ever seem did nah. that seem normal? Did that seem weird? Nah, because those guys are family. They do, you know, mm-hmm. they got their own their own runnings. And honestly, not my place to get in the middle of a lot of that stuff. And and that's family business. And they, you know, they never had a qualm. Look, Jizza never called me up and said I didn't get my publishing. Okay. Like I never I barely know Jizza. Like I've met him, but I don't even really know him. So, you know, there was never any phone call from anyone. The only bone of contention was True master and his credit on Brooklyn Zoo. And that wasn't directed at me. That was directed at Dirty. I see. Uh, he also repeated the damaged lyrics, like, I think a couple part, a couple times in the album. He did. And is, is, that, is that a sort of thing of trying to finish it up? And he's just like, fuck it, I'll do this again? Like, I just think he had the same verses on multiple songs. You know, Grand Poobah would do that too, but he'd always fix it. I think we I just see. had to get it done. So right. we just did it. Right. I mean, Dirty, if you listen to Dirty's freestyles that are online and all that stuff, because I've compiled all the stuff for the doc that they're doing, because um, I'm the music supervisor on it. So he, in all his classic freestyles and all this footage that's out there, he basically he kicks the same rhymes all the time. Right, right, right. Um, Dirty himself is listed as producer of The Stomp. Tell me why, tell me so. I ask you to go high, you tell me to go low. So I go low, taste the shit. Um, you know, I think he played around on ASR and in um in RZA's studio and RZA gave him the credit. Got you. So you never saw him like making beats or nothing like that. Now, he knew how to make beats. He knew how to use the ASR. I seen it. Okay. Like I did actually see it, and, and I had an ASR. He fucked around with it in my studio too a few times. Because I did a song with him that never came out. Well, he used the rhymes on eight other things, but Dirty and Stinkin' <laughs> that was super dope. And I have a copy of it, and Stretch played it a few times. It was really dope. It was off like an Alvin Cash sample. It kind of had a tramp, like Stax feel to it. And it was the best version of that song, I think. But for some reason, we never put it on the album. You know, I had this thing. If I was going to sign you, I want to get you in the studio to make sure you know how to work. And me, him, and 60 Second Assassin went down to my basement. And we made that shit, and, and they killed it. And he did the song in one night. This recording is dirty and it's stinking. Monkey of the Pepe Lapu, so I was thinking about dropping this single on the charts, letting you know, hey, the kid has heart. Little did I know those rap rhymes would be on 18 other records. <laughs> and, they, and they were, I think, sitting in his vault of rhymes for a long time. So just a matter of them. I see. And the interesting thing about that, right? Because this is probably one of your highest profile albums from your like super hot run that you didn't have like us a beat on or like SD50s. So I have, I have a remix of, of Give It To You Raw. Let's get physical, operate your brain to function. I remember the barge at the junction. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? I summed it up as the ace on something. Okay, okay, so I haven't heard that. It's, it's very, the drums are very loud and um, Give it to you raw is not on the album for unknown reasons because it's a dope song. And Riz's version is really good of it. So, but we never put it on the album. And um, so 
when it when it was unfinished, right? And there were the songs that were done and the songs y'all had to finish. Yeah. Like, did RZA just send a stack of beats? Like, these are the beats? Like, these are the nah, ones? They were, they were tracked on the reels. There was very little tracking done other than vocals for the year we were in the studio. <laughs> wow. So a year, a year just trying to get him to sit in front of the microphone. It was him and Buddha Monk a lot of the time. Him and Buddha Monk, me and Jack Herska, or Rick and him and Jack Herska, or, or all three, me, Rick, and Jack Herska. It was, uh, it was interesting. But y'all got it done. Got it, it done. comes out. Uh, from every metric I can see, it looks like a success. How did it feel at the time? Oh, it was a hit record. Hit yeah. record from Jump. Day one. Gold record, platinum now. Um, it was a big-ass record, man. What was the label's response at the time? I mean, look, in leading <laughs> up to making the record, he had gotten shot. Okay. So he got shot on Nostrand Avenue in an attempt to steal his jewels. I think his jewels, hmm. he wouldn't give them up. He got shot. He's in the hospital. He almost, like, he was fucked up, but he survived. Another time he, he ran in someone's house in Queens and then jumped out the window when the dogs were trying to bite him. We never wow. knew if it was because there was a woman involved or what the fuck he was doing. I'm going to say drugs were probably involved. And he got all fucked up and arrested for that. Um, but they let him go. And, you know, there was a lot of, like, crazy shit that happened in the making of the record, including him, like, showing up and ruining multiple shows for people and and um, just being a real handful, like, getting kicked out of every club in New York, stealing microphones when he performed, and basically, you know, just when he came, it was like the human tornado. He would show yeah. up at the club and just make a scene. That was just dirty. And, um, you know, his, his antics had trickled back to the label. But, look, I never really caught much flack about it. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was like, just, get the record done. Like, get the, we know we got one. Get the record done. Because Method Man comes out and blows up. Wu-Tang Clan blows up. So we know we got a shot. Right. And we know we got good singles. So what was the conversation around doing a follow-up record because i know the second one didn't come out yeah exactly like the second one actually comes out five years later the second one is like has a great single i don't i never liked it and i didn't want to even you know go back through it to ask you stuff about not only because you weren't there but because like it's it's a weird sounding record like it sounds to me like it's stitched together line by line it It doesn't sound like an experience that's exactly how they how they made um better have my money he Literally, Pharrell had different verses and lines from different songs and put it together. And I don't think he ever met Khalista after the record was done. Wow. Wow. So was there ever talk while you were there of trying to do a follow-up? Like, what was, what was that like? Now, I left shortly after it came out, so I never okay. was involved in any of those conversations. And, you know, like I said, like, one thing that, that pisses me off about that record is, like, look, Sylvia Rohn, she's a G. She's done lots of great stuff. But that, that doesn't belong on her resume. I did that. Mm-hmm. And she mm-hmm. didn't give me the go-ahead. And she, if anything, was doubting and skeptical about what was going on. And, and I held it down. So, you know, RZA will, will back that up. How close did you stay in tune with Dirty after you left Electra? I, I did it. I did it. You know, I, I got him on this LL. I tried to get him on this LL record when I left. And 
You know, it's, I've told the story too many times. I don't want to tell it again. When he when he peed oh, on the LL. Oh, please tell it again. I mean, it's when he peed on the LL plaque. He went to Chungking and and Chris Lighty had hooked it up, and so I booked it at studio time, and the record was there, and LL didn't show up, and Dirty fucking threw a shit fit because LL would, you know, he he perceived the thought that LL. LL was, was too him. good to, to show up yeah. in the studio. He didn't want to fuck with Dirty, but he wanted Dirty on the record. Mm. He, him and Crazy Sam like were really acting up, and Chris Lighty and, and Crazy Sam had an outstanding beef, and it, it almost came to a head. Uh, I ended up getting in between the two of them. Chris shut the session down. There was definitely at least one gun that wasn't mine in that room when I was in the middle of those guys. Mm. Got Chris out of the studio, um, and and uh, he was like, he threatened him on the way. I was like, I better not see you in the tunnel or anywhere. I'm just telling you. And he's like, I'm not paying for this fucking session, Dante. And I was like, mm. I got you. Um, he left, and LL, I, I I went back, and and you know, Dirty was on his shit, and on a tirade, and he pulled the LL plaque off the wall, pulled his dick out, and pissed on it. And I think Rich, wow. Rich Nice, I think, was in the other studio at the Trackmasters. And, and um, yeah, it was. <laughs> and the girl who worked at Chung King started crying. Laura started crying. She, Damn. And, I, and, and I, I, it's one of the few times I screamed at Dirty. You know, this is my second home. You can't fuck around like that. What the fuck is your problem? And I'll tell you this, that LL Black got cleaned off and put back on that fucking wall. <laughs> It wasn't put back up and clean in front of me, but I was in chunking many times after that. And that shit was back on the wall. Bigger and deafer, that shit got pissed on. Wow. You know, was there any fallout from that? Just Chris and them never really felt, they, they felt the kind of way about each other always. Mm-hmm. Damn. Ugh, just can't imagine. I mean, I told that story so many times. It's in my book. I, I, like, I hadn't like, heard it, though. Kind of like, <laughs> you know, and it was weird because I love Dirty and I love Chris, but Chris is really my man and... Dirty and those guys was talking and, you know, rest in peace, baby Chris, like, he was a serious dude. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he wasn't fucking around. And, and you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be on his bad side, but more than that, he was my good friend and I was mad that Dirty made me look like shit to my man. I mean, his office was right fucking next to mine at that point. So, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. It happened and, and it's one of the many, many antics that Dirty participated in. Is there is there any other antic you wouldn't mind sharing? Something that you feel like people would really want to hear? I mean, I don't know if people really want to hear it, but Dirty once, <laughs> once he once got public fellatio at "How Can I Be Down" by some young girl, and and really basically, you know, several hundred, if not thousands, of people saw him getting uh, receiving a blowjob. Wow! That young woman has probably received. Her head's probably damaged for life. And I remember I walked by him. I was like, fuck is going on, yo? And he was like, yo, she's doing it electric style. Whoa. <laughs> what does me, that even mean? Me and his publicist. And we were like, yo, you are fucking terrible. And then he, wow. then he, he went on stage and he ruined Capleton's show and almost got in a huge fight with Keith Murray. And several other people, and somehow he got out of there alive because Capleton and Jamaican dudes just—they were about it, and it was in Miami. What, what was what was, was Dirty trying to do at, at on, what, during their show? What was he trying uh, he to do? He wanted to rock. No one could, <laughs> you know, just wanted to rock. Dirty always wanted to rock. He wanted to be the center of attention whenever possible. Mm. 
You know, man, I've seen Dirty do so much shit. He, he walked out of uh, the Rap Pages convention in L.A. after killing a show uh, at that spot on Vine. I don't think it's there anymore, the, uh, the Palladium. He walked out and he, and, and he walked out of the show when they cut his sound off. He had his shirt off and he jumped on top of like a, a mailbox or a car, I can't remember which, and started to perform like on the street to like throngs of people. He did that thing with his neck cocked. Yeah, he yeah, was yeah. fucking out of his mind. And it was unfucking believable And then we walked back to the hotel and people followed him like the Pied Piper. He was like, yo, I killed that shit, right? I was like, yeah. It was unbelievable, man. I'll tell you another good one. He, yo, Karis wins a man for this. I gotta, I gotta, I love Chris anyway, but yo, it was CMJ, I believe, or New Music Seminar, one or the other. And it was a show on, at this club on 20-something Street on the east side, a weird venue. And Dirty, oh, so yeah, KRS is hosting and the Fugees are playing. And it's when they only had Nappy Head was their only mm -hmm. popping song, the remix. So they were popping before the album. Right. And Dirty's in the house and KRS One's there and I'm with my friends and fucking, I'm fucking with Karis when he's on stage. I'm an old friend of his and, and Dirty's there. And Chris, Chris loves Dirty. He's enamored by him. He just thinks he's the funniest shit ever. And Dirty's like, yo, 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 God, I, I got to rock. I want to rock. Yo, can I, can I rock? And Karis one is known to ambush a show. He yeah. likes to stir the pot. He is. He, he'd done it to me before. Um, so, so he liked to stir the pot and he was like, word, you got your music, son? And he was like, yeah. He's like, bet. He's like, yo, D, yo, go, go, go hit that to the sound, man. And I, and I, it was a cassette. This is the wildest, a cassette. Not, I believe it was a cassette. My memory's a little wrong. I, I'm pretty sure it was a cassette, not a dat. I was like, you got a cassette player? He's like, yeah. I'm like, yo, old Dirty Bass is going to rock. He's like, what? And Dirty's like, yo, sound, man, it's good. Yo, it's good. And he's like, word? And I'm like, yo, B. He's like, okay, you know, and so Dirty, they, they cued, so he cues up Dirty's music and, and Chris is like, Chris is like, yeah, well, I'm gonna let you know what's up. Like to sound, we're talking directly to him. No one really knows what's going on. So Karis One's like, the show's gonna start. Karis One rocks a little bit. He does like a half the song to warm up the crowd. He's not performing though. And he's like, yo, we got a lot of shit going on tonight, blah, 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 blah. You know, the Fuji's is gonna rock, this one's gonna rock, but, but, yo, we got a special surprise. We got my man, Old Dirty Bastard, and he's, he's gonna rock for y'all. It was before the record came out. People mm -hmm. are like, ah, oh, yeah. So he comes out, and over his vocals, he does Brooklyn Zoo and Shimmy yeah. Shimmy. 
and he, you know, bef- in between songs, everyone's like, doesn't know what to do. And Karis was like, Zach, you do that for my man. You fucking crazy. It was like, ah! and then he does shimmy shimmy. They cut it short. The Fugees are on the side of the stage, furious. And Karis one goes, yo, yo, now you can tell everyone you heard your favorite, your new favorite song six months before it came out. Because that shit's going to be bumping out of every car in New York. And you can't front them, my man, right? And they're like, yeah. And they can't get dirty off the stage. Every crowd goes crazy. So the Fugees are pissed. He's like, now we're going to the Fugees. And the Fugees prize is dumb mad. He has his sunglasses on. He runs out super hyped because he's going to rock the crowd. And he hits the monitor, shifts over and falls in the audience. Damn. And, like, and like 300 <laughs> people start laughing. And Dirty was no. like, Dirty was like, yo, you seen that, right? I was like, yeah. He's like, we're out. And we left. <laughs> that was amazing. I mean, yo. he did shit. He, he, look, he oh, once jumped the fat, the fat boy, sorry, the, 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 um, Fuck Cheeks and them, the Lost Boys at yeah. Palladium. He ruined their show. And he, he basically, another one, he was paid to perform unannounced. The record it was out like two weeks. It was the biggest record in New York, one of them. And biggest street record in New York. Lost Boys were pretty popping then. And he, mm-hmm. came, he gave the dad to the sound man, ran on stage in between their songs, screamed at the sound man who played Brooklyn Zoo and Shimmy Shimmy. He stole their show. But what he didn't realize is I'm there with the Brooklyn Zoo and I know the Lost Boys and they're going to kill me. Um, oh, they right, surround right. me with their crew. And some, th- and some thorough dudes. Very thorough. I knew Cheeks. He's not a joke. And the Brooklyn Zoo is there and it's like me, the Brooklyn Zoo, and the Lost Boys and they're screaming at me because they know me and there's definitely multiple firearms that are minutes, seconds from coming out. And Fat Cap jumped in the middle of it and saved my ass. And I literally, like, was scared of the Lost Boys for, like, several years after. I believe that, man. So, you know, you, you, you give us the, these fabulous, fantastic tales of Dirty. And it, it makes me think of um, this, this Wu-Tang show that's currently on Hulu. But specifically, I want to know if you feel like Dirty, like the actor who plays Dirty, his performance feels so dope to me because, like, yeah, he's he, like he, he the feels best one. really genuine. Yeah, he's the best one, I think, to me. And I yeah. don't know the rest of the guys like that, so so I can't say Ray is pretty good too. But yeah, he looks like Dirty. His mannerisms are good. I mean, I think he got it. And supposedly they wrote me in on this season. I saw the couple episodes. I haven't shown up yet, but supposedly I show up for a brief second in in one of the episodes. So I don't know. And that guy is good as Dirty. And look, Dirty is, um, look, they always said Michael K. Williams was going to play Dirty. That would have been amazing. Mm. It never happened. Um, I, can't, I can't say enough about Dirty. The one thing I always say is him and Doom, um, there, there's a parallel. And, and the thing is, he's mis, misunderstood, I should say, misinterpreted. So... Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think of him as a clown and a court jester and this wild guy who did all this crazy shit and was fucked up on drugs and, and really was dysfunctional. And, and some of that is, is true. He was highly dysfunctional, but he was also a genius. And in mm-hmm. the midst of all his larger-than-life escapades, the genius, the brilliance of who he was and what he created is often lost. And I think it's a real tragedy. And I feel like, and I said it in the documentary, it's really um, 
something often promoted by white journalists, study hip-hop but don't live hip-hop and are not part of the culture necessarily, not, and I say that not contributors to the culture mm -hmm. who portray him as this without recognizing his genius and his brilliance, and I find it very offensive. It's some hipster nonsense um, that pisses me off, and I don't like hearing, like, like when I hear people say that shit about any black artist, I get offended, and I particularly get offended when I hear it about Dirty. Dirty was not mm -hmm. something to celebrate as an ignorant figurehead or mascot for dysfunction. He was a genius who made a wonderful first record and created this character alter ego, this person, you know, this artist who just left a lasting impression on the psyche of hip hop and, and is still remembered as one of the most important and greatest you know, figures in hip hop. And his persona is bigger than the music he made, if that's even possible. But you know, the guy made great music and we can never forget that or his genius or self-awareness. He was very self-aware who he was and he was firmly in control of that first record and how he was positioned and perceived. And I think that gets lost in the sauce and I think it's not cool. It's kind of uh, a tragedy of sorts. And I love the guy and I just feel like it's always my duty to protect my artists and to protect Dirty's legacy. It's a reason why I work with the family to this day and, and why I've, I've helped them do a couple of projects because I feel it's important for one, for the family to make some money. They never made any money. Dirty never really made a lot of money. Um, and two, I think his legacy needs to be shined up and celebrated, not, not held up as an example of uh, dysfunction and ignorance because that's not what he was to me. He was a genius. You know, I get, I get a, a little emotional about it, you know, because I spent all that time with him and, you know, watching his demise from afar, very hard to watch, very hard. Well, I think that's a, a, a great place to leave it and exactly the tone I wanted to leave it on. And for that exact reason, I feel like getting insight from you, you know, somebody who was there and actually getting a chance to see who he was as a person, uh, we don't get enough of that. Uh, well, we're going to leave it there.